0: Well, there endeth the Old Testament with a curse, or at least with a threat of a curse. So we better pray as we come to this passage. Father God, help me uh, to uh, speak with clarity, uh, but more than that, to speak by your Holy Spirit as I uh, speak this evening on Malachi. Lord, may you make our hearts receptive to hearing your word, uh, to being changed by it. Amen. We're in Malachi chapter 2 and verse 17 on page 961 of your Bibles. Um, This was due to be a series of three on Malachi, but because we cancelled the service immediately after Christmas, uh, you have uh, part 2 and 3 all in one evening tonight. So a bonus, a bonus sermon for you tonight, but don't worry, it won't be twice the length. So Malachi chapter 2 and verse 17. Now, you may not believe this, but there was a certain period in my life when an issue like how to dump my girlfriend um, nicely was important. (laughs) I mean, how do you do it? Do you know it nicely over a period of time, not letting them down, you know, letting them down gently? Or do you let them down with a thump so as not to prolong the agony? How do you do it? Nowadays, I mean, in the old days, it used to be impersonal by letter. You know, they were the choices. But nowadays... It seems to be a more endless, you know, in person, over the phone, email, text, Facebook, perhaps uh, the old one, send your friend to go along and say it for you. <laughs> None of these, perhaps, are to be recommended. And if you don't want to go for the direct approach, you know, I'm breaking up with you, then what do you say? Well, some people might, might try to weary them, weary your partner down with untrue accusations. Or horrify her with some sort of dishonesty in your life. Or put her off by saying harsh things to her. Like, it's pointless trying to be nice to you. I could buy you a lorry load of red roses and you still wouldn't notice. Things like that. Again, none of this is to be recommended. Don't report me to Alan. This is not pastoral advice, okay? It's simply an illustration. But sooner or later, if you use those methods, the message would get across. Well, believe it or not, that is not dissimilar to the situation we find in Malachi. Malachi was written about 400 to 500 years before Christ, around about the time of Nehemiah and Haggai and Zechariah. Most of the Jews had returned from their exile in Babylon and settled once again in Judah. But they were still enduring poverty and foreign domination by the Persians. The temple had been rebuilt, Around 515 BC, and worship there had restarted. But it was carried on with very little enthusiasm. You see, the age of miracles had passed for Elijah and Elisha. There was no more excitement in the worship. The priesthood was corrupt. Worship had become just routine. Interracial marriage was still acceptable. Divorce was widespread. Social justice was ignored. Ties were neglected. The people had been promised by the prophet Ezekiel that the glory of the Lord would return to the temple. But so far it just looked like a building of stones. The glory had not returned. You see, that special covenant relationship with God, between God and his people living back in Judah, had grown stale and formal. And quite frankly, these people were looking for ways to quietly dump their God. And yes... You've guessed it, according to Malachi, they were trying three different approaches. In chapter 2 and verse 17, they tried to weary him with untrue accusations. God is not really just. Evil doers, get away with it. Evil doers please him. In chapter 3 and verse 8, they tried to steal from him by withholding their tithes. And in chapter 3 and verse 13, they were saying harsh things about him by saying, it's futile to serve you. We can never please you no matter how hard we try. But what I want you to learn tonight is that God doesn't let go of us quite so easily. He cannot be shaken off quite so lightly. And He gives them three answers to their feeble attempts at dumping their God. He says, Return to me and I will return to you. He says, Give me what is mine and I will pour out my blessing upon you. And He says, Remember my name, and I will remember your name. So let's have a look at the first of these tactics and promises. So firstly, the people tried to wear God out with their false accusations, and God's promise came back, return to me, and I will turn to you. So in chapter 2 and verse 17, you have wearied the Lord with your words. How have you wearied him, you ask? By saying, all who do evil are good in the eyes of the Lord, and he is pleased with them. Or where is the God of justice? So the people are complaining, saying, only bad people prosper under God. He's pleased with them. Where is God's justice, justice if all these bad people prosper? And it's not a dissimilar question to the sort the questions that we might hear today. And here's the first evidence of this covenant relationship having gone stale. Instead of a people grateful to be the chosen ones of God, to have that privilege of being chosen by God, and being thankful for all that God had done for them in the past, they now operated to this very simple worldview. If I am good, then God should reward me. If I am bad, then God should punish me. In fact, they were behaving quite like small children. I picked my pyjamas up, therefore I should get my pocket money never thinking that actually picking up your pyjamas is something the very least that they can do to help out around the home. My children still haven't got that message. The Judeans were saying, we're doing everything that we were supposed to do. We've returned to the land, we've rebuilt the temple, we're making our sacrifices there, but still the bad people get away with it and even prosper. So where's the justice, which was supposed to be a central part to living with God in the promised land? But what is God's answer. Well, he answers their complaints head-on, but in two stages. The first stage, he says, is that, I will send my messenger who will prepare the way before me. And in the second part of verse 1, the messenger of the covenant whom you desire will come, says the Lord Almighty. It's a theme that is picked up again later in chapter 4 and verse 5. See, I will send you the prophet Elijah before that great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. Now, there's not really much time to go into this little uh, debate, but the identity of this messenger has been the subject of much debate over the last, or certainly for the 500 years before Christ, and probably so all the 2,000 years since then, too. In a sense, it's immaterial, because the function or the role of the messenger in chapter 3, verse 1, and Elijah in chapter 4, verse 5, and of John the Baptist in the Gospels is all identical. All of them existed to prepare the way for the second stage of God's answer to the people's complaint. That is the coming of the Lord, the coming of the Lord Jesus. So verse 1 says, Then suddenly the Lord you are seeking will come to to his temple. Notice that even after this preparation, the Lord will still come suddenly. It's as if Malachi knows that these people still won't be ready for the Lord, despite the messenger who's come to prepare the way. He knows they're not really seeking him. He knows that their complaints are not the kind that a true believer makes when they're trying to connect with God and they're trying to communicate more deeply with God. They're the kind that an, a, a person makes who doesn't really want to know God. They're just complaining and wringing. See, they don't really desire the messenger or the justice that they know will follow it. After all, in verse 2, who can endure the day of Of his coming. Who can stand when he appears? For he will be like a refiner's fire. Or, in this image that singularly fails to strike terror into our hearts in the English translation, like the launderer's soap. We don't get many songs written about launderer's soap, do we? We get a few about refiner's fire, but not much about launderer's soap. But soap, of course, hadn't yet been invented then. It was describing the strong alkali substance that they'd put on cloth to whiten it. So the idea is the same, all the impurities will be burnt away. The image in verse 3 is of the metal worker sitting and staring at their small melting pots. The refiner looks into the open furnace and knows that the process is complete when all the dross is all burnt away, and when suddenly he can see his own image plainly reflected in the molten metal in the pot. You see, the first to be refined are the spiritual leaders. They take the responsibility for the spiritual state of the people. It's dangerous to put yourself in this position. But it's not only them. They need, to be just, they need to be purified so that the ordinary people can make acceptable offerings. As we see in verse 3, he will purify the Levites and refine them like gold and silver. But then the Lord will have men who will bring offerings and righteousness. The offerings of Judah and Jerusalem will be acceptable to the Lord. So for other So the Levites were purified so that others could make their own acceptable offerings. But for others, justice would be much, much more penetrating. The Lord is coming, verse 5, to bring judgment. And when it happens, it will be done quickly, using some kind of short-circuited process with none of the niceties of the English justice system. Here the Lord sits as both judge and witness. I will be quick to testify against all those evildoers that the people thought were getting away with it, the sorcerers, the adulterers and the perjurers, and so on. All those who do not fear me, says the Lord Almighty. You see, God is uniquely able to know what is right and to what is wrong. Judgment will be quick, effective and final. Wrongdoing will be punished. Otherwise, there would simply be no justice in the world. But, says God, in verse 6, truly, he says, truly, in the first person, God says, I, the Lord, do not change. Now, what does he mean? Why does his unchangeability mean that the people of Judah, the descendants of Jacob, are not destroyed? Surely, they've come close to being destroyed on a number of occasions, their history includes many examples of rebellion and evil-deserving punishment. Verse 7 says, Ever since the time of your forefathers, you have turned away from my decrees and have not kept them. But here they are, back in the promised land again, and they still not been destroyed. The answer is that here is the same unchanging God who opened the book of Malachi by saying in chapter 1 and verse 2, I have loved you, says the Lord. But how have you loved us, they asked. And God's answer is simply that they have been chosen. Verse 2, yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. See, Jacob wasn't chosen because he was specially especially good or talented or capable person. In fact, the Bible portrays him as quite a dishonest character, a dishonest schemer. But the Lord chose the descendants of Jacob to be in this very special covenant relationship with him. This is Old Testament grace, being chosen by God to enter this special relationship. And God does not change when he comes to the New Testament. Malachi says that this messenger will come, and then the Lord will come, bringing judgment and destruction. But what Malachi didn't see, and what we can see by reading the Gospels, is that John the Baptist comes preparing the way, saying, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near, in Matthew chapter 3. And then the Lord does come in Jesus. But instead of the instant judgment and refining fire and launderer's soap that we all deserve, Jesus takes up John's message just the same. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near, in Matthew chapter 4 and verse 17. You see, this is New Testament grace. We all deserve judgment. But Jesus came and he provided the means by which we may all be saved. It is as if God is repeating in Jesus what he said through Malachi at least 400 years before. Return to me and I will turn to you. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. To God cannot be shaken off that easily. There's a story from Brazil that preachers like to tell about a young girl who left home for the high life of the city. It broke her mother's heart. And worse was to come because after a while the letters stopped coming home. In the end, her mother, fearing that she'd fallen into very bad company, scraped her last money together and went to the big city to try and find her. She searched high and low. Her last effort was to go around all the seedy bars and clubs and leaving a photograph of herself stuck on the wall with a simple message underneath. Wherever you are, whatever you've done, come home. One day, the daughter went into a bar and her eye just caught on something. What? What sat on the wall? It was her mother. And over she went and she read the words underneath. Wherever you are, whatever you've done, come home. And at that, the memory of her mother, and the thought of that welcome, she melted into tears, and of course started that long journey back home. And that's what it's like for us with God. Return to me, and I will return to you. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. The second way to try and dump your God, well, you might try to steal from him. And God's answer to that is, well, give me what is mine, and I will pour out my blessing upon you. So verse 8, Will a man rob God, yet you rob me? But you ask, how do we rob you? In tithes and offerings, you are under a curse, the whole nation of you, because you are robbing me. A tithe, of course, means giving 10% of your income to God. It's an ancient practice that goes right back to Abraham and Jacob, well before Numbers tells us that a tenth of all produce was holy to the Lord. In the days of Malachi, the tithe went to support the Levites, who themselves gave a tenth to the selected priests who would actually carry out the work in the temple. But this wasn't happening. The situation becomes so bad, Nehemiah records, in chapter 13 of Nehemiah, that he had to rebuke the temple officials because the Levites and the musicians responsible for the services had simply gone back home and were working in their fields because they weren't being paid. That was the only way they could live. Now, now at this point, you could almost cue the talk about giving your 10%. But it would be wrong to take such a straightforward application from Malachi's statement here. In verse 10, God gives them this personal challenge or an invitation to test him by saying, bring the whole tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house, and test me in this, says the Lord Almighty, and see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that you will not have room enough for it. I'll prevent your pests from devouring the crops, and the vines in your fields will not cast, will not cast their fruits," says the Lord Almighty, and all the nations will call you blessed. You see, it's physical, concrete blessing, good crops, plentiful fruit, so much visible physical blessing that the other nations will look on with jealousy at the delightful land that they're living in. But again, it would be wrong to draw the simple, straightforward application that some people try to do, which is give God his 10% and he will return the blessing with a pre credit crunch level of return. No, certainly God promises an abundance of blessing, and that promise still applies. But in the New Testament, it's of a different character entirely. It's not 10%. It's whole life. It's a whole life offering. And in return, it's a whole life blessing. Now, what does that mean? Simply that, from Luke chapter 9, whoever wants to save his life will lose it, says Jesus. But whoever loses his life for me will save it. And in turn, we are offered eternal life and life to the full. Whole life offering and whole life blessing. It's a completely fresh start. As we return to Christ, he can make us better than ever before. No matter how far we've drifted away from God, he can restore us and use us for his purposes. This morning I interviewed Valtrow Jowd and John Drake, who you may have heard, have both been recognised with the MBE in this New Year's Honours. It's great to have two within the same church, in the same year. They were recognised for their work with the charities Feed the Minds, the Meningitis Trust, and Knowledge YMCA. They're examples for all of us in this church, for people who've made a whole life offering to God, not just 10%, but their whole lives being given over to serving others and serving God. And in return, I'm sure they would say, they've been motivated by their love for God and they've received a whole life blessing in return. So God says, give me what is mine, and I will pour out my blessing upon you. It comes the third way to quietly dump your God. You can say harsh things about him. And what does God say? He says, remember my name, and I will remember your name. So here in verses 13 to 17, Malachi describes two groups of people. First in verse 13, he says, to whom the Lord says, you have said harsh things against me. And they ask, what have we said against you? And verse 14, you have said it's futile to serve God. What did we gain by carrying out his requirements and going about like mourners before the Lord Almighty? And I guess that for them, sometimes being a non-observant Jew looked a bit more fun than being an observant one. And sometimes we're tempted as Christians, aren't we, to look at non-Christians and think, well, that looks a little bit more, a little bit more fun But this group of people couldn't get themselves out of that rut. It's another example of this covenant relationship having gone sour. They were only interested in one thing. What can I gain? What do I gain from this, they ask? But verse 16 describes a second group of people, a different group of people. It says, Then those who feared the Lord talked with each other, and the Lord listened and heard. And a scroll of remembrance was written in his presence concerning those who feared the Lord, and honoured his name. Now this second group of people lived side by side and shoulder to shoulder with the first group. But their talk was very different. And the Lord listened to them and heard those people. They were people who were being realistic. They knew life was tough and not everything was good. But they were people who did want to fear God and honour him, despite of everything else. And when they were feeling discouraged, what did they do? They got together with others, and they encouraged each other. They were the people who knew that when the fire burns low, the live colds need to be pushed together to bring that fire back to life again. And we have to ask, don't we, do we have Christian friends who can encourage us and draw us closer to God, even when times are tough? Do we have Christian friends with whom we just don't talk about what we're doing this weekend or what we're up to or hobbies that we share in common but we talk about God and we talk about his word and we encourage each other from, from his word and by praying together. It's these people who are praying and talking together who are heard above the cacophony or complaints from the others. And it is their names which are written in the Book of Remembrance. That wasn't necessary because God is forgetful. It's just another picture to say that their salvation is certain once their names are recorded in the Book they are the ones who revere the name of the Lord. They are the ones who, when they meet together, remind each other of the law of my servant Moses, the decrees and the laws I gave him at Horeb for all Israel, says, says chapter 4 and verse 2. They are the ones who will be his treasured possession. I will spare them, God says, as a father has compassion on an obedient son. And then all the insolent questions and harsh words said about God, will be answered. Verse 18, you will again see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between those who serve God and those who do not. The two groups will be exposed for all to see. And that's when the image changes from the controlled circumstances of this refiner's fire in the small uh, smelting pot to a bushfire of chapter 4 and verse 1. In the dry and arid landscape of Judah, the fire rages out of control across the fields, burning up all the evildoers as if they were just stubble. Here the prophet looks even further forward to the second return of Jesus, when the destiny of that first group of complainants is only too clear to see. Not even a root or a branch will be left to them. But thankfully there is a second destiny as well. But for you who revere my name, the sun of righteousness will rise with healing in its rings, and you will go out and leap like calves released from the stall. Then you will trample down the wicked. There will be ashes under the sole of your feet on the day when I do these things, says the Lord Almighty. So we're back in that arid Judean landscape. A little later on, the bushfire has died down, the, par- the fire has passed away, and the threat is gone. Some calves have been cooped up in their barn, out of harm's way, but now suddenly the doors are opened and they're released, and they jump out into the field, leaping and dancing about, doing cartwheels with joy and all that pent up energy. When, of course, they're not leaping across green, grassy fields here, they're treading on the ashes of what's been burned in the fire. They're released into the world where the threat of evil, and the threat of evil doing, has gone forever. The son of righteousness will rise over the whole earth with healing in its wings. So God says, remember my name, and I will remember your name. God cannot be shaken off that easily. And that is the conclusion of Malachi. This stale covenant relationship can be renewed. God says, return to me and I will return to you. Give me what is mine, and I will pour out the abundance of my blessing upon you. Remember my name, and I will remember your name. And if, he do, if we do that, he will turn the hearts of the fathers to the children, and the hearts of the children to their fathers. You see, throughout the generations, the Jews had often turned away from God, and then turned back to him. Each generation had something to teach other generations, and something to be ashamed of. But now, as the covenant is renewed, All the recriminations of their history dissolve before their eyes as the hearts of fathers turn to their children and the hearts of children turn to their fathers, a people at peace with God and at peace with each other. Or else the alternative is that the covenant relationship will continue stale and cold and the Lord will come and strike the land with a curse. Let's pray. Lord, sometimes when we read the Old Testament, it strikes us as harsh and difficult and challenging because we want to say that your love will overcome all and there need not be any judgment or pain or refining fire. But Lord, we know that that is not the case. We know that there can be no true justice without punishment for the evildoers, as well as salvation for those who turn to you. Lord, may each one of us here tonight be people who have returned to you. And we praise and thank you for your promise that you will return to us. You will give us abundant blessing, not only in this life, but the next. And Lord, you will remember our name when it comes the judgment time. Thank you for your salvation.